Hello and welcome to The Boss Podcast episode 30. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we are looking at how do you see innovation and how do you harness it effectively to make it work? How do people learn and how can they work better? Welcome to the Business of Software podcast where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Bob Mesta is the President and CEO of the Rewired Group and serves as a Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. He has used the insights that Jobs to be Done generates throughout his career as an entrepreneur and innovator. Every innovator comes across daily problems that they don't know how to answer or where to even start thinking about. In this fast-paced talk from Boss USA 2018, Jobs to be Done expert and lifelong innovator Bob helps give you the skills to make all your innovation outcomes more predictable and successful. Bob has honed these key skills from his life working in everything from automotive, weapon systems, food, private equity, home building, construction software and more. In this talk, Bob will cover the five skills of an innovator and help remind both individuals and teams about the basics of being and becoming better at innovation and launching new products. At Business of Software USA 2013, Bob and fellow Rewired Group founder Chris Speak gave a brilliant talk on how to practically use jobs to be done in your business. You can watch that talk at businessofsoftware.org slash videos. Happy listening. You better be awake. All right. So I'm going to talk about the five skills of an innovator which is me, how I became an innovator. And let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm an engineer, electrical, undergrad, studied both mechanical, chemical, um, basically have my MBA. But I think is I've, I've learned a lot about how to develop products. I'm from Detroit, so Mark told me I couldn't swear. Is that correct? So that means I'm going to swear. Damn. All right. <laughs> you can bleep it out. The other part is I've worked on over 3,500 different innovations. I've worked on everything from the, the guidance system for the Patriot Missile. I've worked on Pokemon mac and cheese for Kraft. I've worked on Basecamp. I've worked on healthcare systems and just about everything you can imagine in between. The other thing you have to realize is I'm dyslexic. I had three close head brain injuries and I can't read and write. My mom basically taught me how to hack the system because she knew if I was labeled as special ed, the system would take care of me my whole life. So she did things like teach me how to lip read when taking a test so I could take the test. She taught me to read by circling the five biggest words on a page and, and guessing what the hell the page was, oh, what the heck the page was about, <laughs> right? So seven years old when this all started, right? So what I want to talk about, though, is basically this phrase, context creates value and contrast creates meaning. This is the thing that drives me, and it's driven me to be able to be, you know, basically to go, to go innovate, and so I want to unpack what that means. I've done everything from automotive, weapon systems, food, private equity, home building and construction software, and basically I'm headed to be a, a, an adjunct in the Kellogg School at the Entrepreneurial School. And so where's Peldy? Peldy, raise your hand. So I'm 10 years ahead of you, right? And so I want you to, I want you to pay attention to this because do you, you need to see this number here. Do you see that number right there? What number is it? That is the number of days I have left in my life. So I've, my mom passed away at 63, and she never saw it coming. And so what I did is I took her death date, added it to mine, my birth date, and said, when will I die? I've chosen to pick that as my death date. And so literally, I'm here because I only have 3,000 days left, and I need to impact people. It's all about relationships, as you'll see. But by picking that date, it's actually impacted me dramatically to literally say, hell, this swearing part is going to be hard. No, I'm not going to do that. Yes, I'm going to do this. And so my thing is, is by picking a death date, as crazy as it might sound, the fact is, is you start to realize that it's way more than money. It's all about relationships. Okay? This is, this is a smattering of the people I've worked with in my life. Everybody from Clay Christensen. So I, I've been lucky enough to have 27 years with Clay Christensen for four hours every quarter consistently for that period of time. No agenda. Sit down and think and talk. I worked with... Jason Freed, I've worked with Luke, Robles uh, yeah, Luke Robleski, I've worked with Dr. Taguchi. If anybody knows who that is, I'm going to be shocked that he's the most awesome man in the world. These are all the people who helped teach me and the shoulders which I stand on, right? And there's, behind them are another thousand people. 
but to realize that we all are learning from each other all the time, right? The craziest part is this man right here, I was his intern when I was 19 years old. I had no idea who he was. He took me to Japan. I worked for Ford Motor Company. They took me to Japan to learn all about his systems, not in manufacturing, but in innovation, and how Toyota was actually building better product and doing it in half the time at twice the quality of what we could do. So that's where my life started from an from a engineering perspective, right? So here's the crazy part to me, is having done all these different innovations, the way I frame this up is there's a sweet spot that's between a really good insight, a place where somebody struggles and a consumer wants to make progress, strategic clarity of why are we doing the business, the business model piece of it, and the, and the, and the systems behind it. And you need all three. Great technology, great insight, crappy strategy, I, I lose. Great strategy, great insight, crappy technology, I lose. I need all three together. But the reality is, it's what, why, and how for who, when, and where. And so to me, that's the key is being able to understand the who, when, and where of, of who you're actually serving. And so it's a combination of both that have be, be, been able to make me successful. This is how naive I was in the beginning. I'd see a problem. You'd pick up the rope and say, hey, I can solve this problem. And little did I realize that there was just a big mountain of sh crap on the other side. I'm doing, is that all right? Can I say crap? Okay, good. I'll do, I'll do better. The reality is, is that there's a sim simplistic approach to how we think. Sometimes people just dive in and do the first thing off the top of their head. And what I've realized is you have to get through the complexity to get to simplicity on the other side. It's one of the only quotes I've memorized. And when, it, when I heard it, it really rocked me, which is, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's a Supreme Court justice from uh, 1902, said, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give my life for simplicity on the other side of complexity. So I want to share with you what my life is like on the other side of complexity so I can show you how to innovate better. Right? Here's the thing. This is, this is where, how I learned. I learned actually waterfall. But if this is the product development, right? This is the number of changes, and this is the, the, the design cycle, and this is where I launch. What would happen is we do very little changes up front. We get the concept to work once, and then we'd start to put it together, put the whole car together. More and more changes, keep going, keep going, keep going. Then you get to this point, I call it the Nike point. Just launch it. We'll just launch it, get it out there, and then afterwards, we'd fix it, and then all of a sudden, oh, we got to cost reduce it. We got to make it faster, cheaper, better. Right? And so this is, the, this is the system that I, I, I was taught on in, 19, in the 80s. Right? And, and eventually, I started to realize there were people who were doing it way different. And they had a completely different pattern of changes. And it looked like this. And, and so what you realize is that in this system development, they were doing 10 times the prototypes we were. They were literally making things fail. They were figuring out how to push to the limits. So the notion to me is the biggest fallacy is people say, oh yeah, you got to fail to be a successful entrepreneur. No, you have to fail pushing the limits. You just don't fail. Are you trying to make it faster? Are you trying to make it better? Are you trying to make it cheaper? What are you failing for? And what are you trying to do that doesn't exist now? And so to me, I've spent my whole life trying to figure out how to be more green line than red line. The other part that was kind of crazy about this is that when you look at costs, the cost of a change goes from x, 10x, 100x, 1000x. So Literally, if I'm on the red line, I end up spending almost twice as much, three times as much, to build the same product because I'm reacting, right? And so what we end up having was half the time, half the resources, and 10 times the impact. And so to me, was it methods? Was it tools? Was it thinking? What, what the heck was that all about? I'm trying to get PG? What's in PG? Okay. Look, redline innovators are very linear thinkers. Redline innovators are basically focusing on problems. The craziest part to me is that red line, uh, red line innovators are waiting for problems to happen. It works. Oh, now it doesn't work. OK, fix it. Everything's a reactive reaction to some problem of some sort. The green line, basically, innovators, they're thinking about it from a very, like, how do I make it fail early? How do I understand what causes failure? How do I understand all those different things? And so to me, this is really the, 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 the dichotomy between being a red line and a green line innovator. So I want to talk about that. So for me, innovation is like standing on the edge of an abyss. What does that mean? Has anybody had that feeling where you're literally sitting there like, and everybody's behind you looking at you like, OK, what are we going to do? And like everything is possible, and nothing is possible at the same time. It's just crazy to me. right? And to be honest, those are the moments I love. 
And so what I want to come back with is, what are the tools that I have when I find myself on the abyss? What are the skills that I have that actually have me run into that fire as opposed to run from the fire? And the reality is, is there's, there's, there's five skills that I, that, that I asked a lot of people about who innovate with me to say, what are my, what's my skills? What am I really good at from, a, from a, actually a functional perspective of helping teams do stuff? And they came back with five things. So one of them is empathetic perspective. The ability to see it from so many different perspectives. I literally, as a dyslexic, I could never read a word. So I actually had to look at this things from so many different perspectives to say, all right, what the, I'm going to say hell. What the hell does that mean? All right, I'm not going to get worse than that, though. Second one, functional systems. There's so much understanding around systems, but Taguchi taught me this thing called functional systems that I want to share that really is one of those underlying skills that lets me see things really, really clearly and understand what to do next. Consumer progress. This is really about understanding what causes people to want to buy something new or to do something new. This is all the behavior of people. And so part of it is, what are those tools? Experience design, why is that? Uh-oh, that's a problem. Um, this is about designing experiences. What I'm finding is people can design product, but they're actually not designing it from the customer side back and understanding experiences. So experience design is at the crucial aspect of the intersection of both functional systems and progress. And the last one is prototyping, which is I have this very strange way of thinking about prototypes and using prototypes, and I use it in everything I do in my life, and I want to be able to share that. So let's start with empathetic perspective. Empathetic. So this is the first thing I saw when I was about, I think about 20 years old. Does anybody know what this is that? How many people see the old woman? How many people see the young woman? Right? The reality is, is the same picture can actually, you can see two different things. The young woman is looking backwards over her shoulder. The old woman is looking down and has her chin down. And all of a sudden you start to realize that the same data set, you can actually see completely different things in it. And so part of it was, this was my obsession to say like, all right, how do I know I have the right data? The second part was, is I, I always love this example, is if I get a bunch of scientists together and blindfold them and, and show them to an elephant and, they ask, and I ask them what it is and they all feel different pieces of it, they're not going to be able to put the whole thing together. And so to me, this aspect of what you see, how much do you see, how big is the picture, I, I feel like that was one of my biggest things, especially as a non-reader, this was my greatest Weakness. I was very, very insecure about this. And so the first thing that started was just being able to contrast things. And Deming actually hit this hard, was talk about the problem. What are the root causes of the problem? Can you understand the difference between a problem and a solution? Can you understand symptoms versus problem versus solution? And what you realize is the English language blows. It's just horrible. We, we can speak up at these levels of pablum where stuff doesn't make any sense. And so part of this is, how do I actually separate all this stuff? So to me, these perspectives help me, one, get the words out so we can understand what they mean, and then systems help me unpack it down to what do things really mean. So the other thing is, is, is this version of macro and micro. Taguchi used to always look at me and say, think of yourself as a molecule. Think of yourself as an electron. Think of yourself as a piece of data. What happens to you? and really focusing me to think about micro behaviors that would happen to me, for example, I'll talk about a paint system, but it's like, if I'm a paint molecule, what happens? How do I get made? Where do I get pressurized? How do I actually get into the paint gun? How do I actually get, as I'm going through the air, what am I like? Thinking about things in very, very small increments. And then I'd turn around and run and go see Clay, and he would talk about things in decades, <laughs> right? And so this notion of being whipsawed between different perspectives again, helps you just kind of see that problem or see what you're doing from so many different actually angles. And so to me, the really important part here is to make sure that we actually start to look at things from multiple perspectives all the time, right? Classic ones to me is, what's the flow of money? What's the flow of information? What's the flow of finished goods? Always trying to make sure that we can see things from all these different perspectives because it helps me from an from a, from a innovation perspective to know where the conflict's going to be, right? So this is the one I've been working on the most right now, is with Ryan Singer. How many people know Basecamp? A few? So Basecamp is a project management, uh, project collaboration type software. And Ryan and I have been really working on this notion of space and time, which is where and when do people start a project? Where and when do they struggle? 
And how do we actually understand those struggling moments? And can we understand the job of why people are doing things? And so part of this is how do I look at data to actually align it? So typically, you'd look at things like, well, here's what happened Thursday. But what I would say is, how do I actually back this up to say, how does everybody who started a project, what happened after day one, day two, day three, day four? How do, the, how do these projects play out? And so understanding space and time is, is, is very, very crucial in terms of being able to have very good empathetic perspective. There's a movie I saw that literally <laughs> kind of typified how I felt or how I feel when I do this, which is this scene here, The Last Jedi. This is Rey, and she's in a hole. And all of a sudden, her image starts to show behind her, and the image starts to show in front of her. And the whole notion is, is you can see her raising her hand and snapping her fingers, and then, and then the snap goes off away. And to me, this, this symbolizes the fact of being able to turn around and look backwards and say, what the heck happened? And the ability to understand causality clear enough that I can look forward and say, what's going to happen? And cause and effect is the way in which we see the future. And so to me, this notion of understanding time and space for your customers, for your teams, for everybody, the notion is understanding how to play things out is really, really important. Right? I do want to bring up three things. One is this notion of guessing, especially in innovation. I feel like planning is guessing. I get the project first day. I'm the actually stupidest I can possibly be at that moment, and I put together a plan. Right? And somebody, I call them the church of finance, holds me accountable to that plan I put together. And especially if I'm a large organization. But three weeks later, guess what? I know I should change the plan, but what happens if I change the plan? Well, you're, you're not following your objectives. The objective should be this, and you should know what you're doing. In innovation, we don't. And if you do, you're not actually innovating in my book. Innovation should be about the unknown. That's why, that's why things like Agile work so well. I lean start so well, because you're learning all the time. And so don't think the plan, I always think about it as reserving capacity and having deadlines to basically check in and being able to see it in a completely different way. The other part is lying. In terms of, I don't think of people malicely lying. There's many causes of why people lie. And part of it is, is omission is a form of lying. And so part of it is, to, is, to be honest, I spend a lot of time understanding the types of lies and to be able to understand where am I most vulnerable and being able to understand how to get to the clarity and get to truth. What really is happening? What's not happening? How do we see it? To me, the hardest part here is measurement. I can't, we usually measure what's easy to measure, but not what's meaningful. And then we try to make meaningful things out of easy measures. But the reality is measurement is the hardest thing of all. And the, once we can measure it, then we can manage it. Then we actually can make it better. But we don't spend enough time really thinking about meaningful measures. And so the, the, the last part is, is one of the things is Taguchi, both Taguchi and Deming used to kind of, both of them were hard of hearing. And I was 18, and they would yell at me. And I didn't realize they couldn't hear. I thought they were just mad. So these things are like this uh, PTSD of like, oh my god, they're yelling at me. But the reality is they would all say that the world is not random. Randomness is our ability to basically say we don't know. And it's a, it's, it's, in some cases, they would say it's lazy thinking. And so what we end up doing is uh, uh, increasing the sample size to get statistical significance to a bad question is a bad idea. And people, people confuse what's statistically significant to what's important. And they're two different things. And so to me, I actually have changed the way after reading this book. This is probably the most influential book. And if you haven't read this book, it's awesome. It's called The End of Average. It's by Todd Rose, an amazing, and Peter Molinar from, from Penn State. Peter Molinar is the math guy behind it. So the other part is I'm dyslexic, but I can actually see equations in my head. You can give me an equation, I can literally play it out. Right? But they basically taught me that, look, it's more about cause and effect. The moment I start talking about probability, I'm talking about averages. The moment I start thinking about, about um, basically uh, statistics, it's the fact that every number is generated in context. And I need to understand the context that that number was generated. And when you average it, you actually strip away context. So you lose it. And so he talks about how to cluster and how to see patterns in behaviors through time. Right? Oh. So, Peldy, this is, this is how I've actually done over the last, I've been doing it for a while. Oh, hold on. I want to see what that one looked like. But over time, I, this is how I improve my ability to have perspective, is I paint. 
I've been spending many, much time figuring out how to mix colors, how to do brush strokes, how to actually represent, and to be honest, to build abstractions in my mind of what was the interview I just did and how do I actually convey it in a different way to build different languages. I have 794 paintings to date, right? This one I did this summer, and I just wanted to see it on the big screen. Oh, oops, hold on. Come on, go back. It's gonna go again, damn it. There we go. It's a big file, that's why it's taking so long. So I just, want to, I just want to appreciate it for one second. I like it that big. I like it that big. Right now it's about six, six feet. I didn't mean to get that. All right, skill number two, functional systems. Understanding how things work, right? There's many, 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 many ways in which to talk about systems, but the very hard part is every time I pull something up on Google, nothing explains systems how I've been using systems and how Taguchi and Deming and everybody else taught me systems. So I want to just talk about it for a second. So it really gets back to levels of abstraction. So my mom said something that horrified me. She said, it's a word world. And when you can't read, that scares the crap out of you. If everybody's using words and you can't read words and you can't see words and you don't know what words mean, how do you figure this out? And so part of it is, is my hacking of being able to figure these things out, right? To me, meetings and marketers are usually full of words. Make it easy, make it fun, make it fast, right? But what does all that mean, right? And it all has different meaning in different contexts. And so just aggregating all the requirements together without understanding the context they're used in, I'm screwed. And so for me, it's really that the English language blows. And so half my time is spent unpacking these words down to actions. What do people really mean by fun? There's eight ways to cause fun. What are the four we're gonna use? How do they work? I only have money for two, which two are we gonna pick? But I can't do it all. And so part of this is, is the aspect of getting away from just the marketing and positioning down to what do I actually have to create as experiences, right? So again, yelling in my ear. You don't know, if you're, you don't know what you're doing if you can't do a process. So the interesting part here is I think a lot of us took this the wrong way, that everything's about process, especially the church of finance, because let's be sure, sometimes quality is a little part of that church. But the reality is, is what he's saying is you need to describe what you're doing. You need to know how to talk to other people about what you're doing. You gotta talk to people how it works. And so in most cases, the process was not the thing to follow, it was the thing in which to help you articulate to everybody else how it worked. And so you could get to common language and common definition as opposed to, hey, I'll write down the process here. You follow the process, treating people like robots. That's not right, right? His, his, so the initial part to me was learning this thing called SIPOC, suppliers, inputs, processes, outputs, consumers, and having conversations about who are the consumers of the output you create? What's the quality level? So just because I made the list, is the, consumer gonna the customer going to use the list, whether inside the company or outside the company? Using this at all levels of the organization, but it fo focuses us on understanding who's going to get what, what's going to happen to it, what value-adding are we doing to it, what's the outputs we're trying to deliver, and what's the value from the, from the customer side. And it forces us to have very, very meaningful uh, conversations end-to-end, -end, as opposed to just what are we going to do, right? So this is where Taguchi kind of blew my mind. Because Taguchi came back and said, no, 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 systems are about functions. I said, functions? What the hell is a function? He said, well, a function is something that you put together and that when you put the system together, it actually does something, a complete new characteristic of that system. Right? So when I, you know, what causes a plane to fly? The plane has to fly, but what systems have to come together to cause flight? Right? But he would talk about the differences of what we would say, what are the inputs? What are the, what are the control factors? What things do I have responsibility for? What are the, what's the actual outputs? And what are the measures? The interesting part is this, this notion of what is measurement is the trickiest thing in the world. I spend probably 30% of my time figuring out measurement systems. My belief is the people who actually break through and do measurement systems better will own the world. And when you can't measure it well, you can't actually improve it, right? And so part of this is being able to understand what function does the system do, how do I measure it, but the key that's, that Taguchi actually added was this notion of noise factors. At some point in time, there's variation to the system I'm building. Things that influence it, variation that comes in, variation that happens inside the system, variation that happens outside the system, they all influence it. 
And what we used to do is we'd call that root cause. The root cause is because the temperature went up in the, in the server room, and so all of a sudden the servers went down. It's like, no, I need to make it robust to temperature. I need to figure out how to actually make sure it can handle the different noise factors. And so it focuses you to have conversation of not only how is it supposed to work, but what are the things that, that actually can hurt it from working so you can talk about how to make it more and more robust and different methods around it, right? So here's the thing. Ryan, Ryan Singh and I are having a conversation the other day. He's like, uh, and he, he, we were talking about this earlier this summer around this whole notion of, of objects, object-oriented kind of systems and function-oriented systems. And so we had this argument where he said, well, if I look at a bottle of water, like uh, we're sitting there drinking water, I think he goes, yeah, there's a cap and a bottle. And I want to create the ideal cap and the ideal bottle and put them together and they work. And so the whole notion is the engineer of the cap and the engineer of the, of the bottle, the fact is it's, these are the two things I'm going to go build. But the reality is, is what I would say is, but that's not the functions. The, one of the key functions is sealing the water. And the seal is actually the interface between the bottle and the cap. And understanding the variation of the threads on the cap and the threads on the bottle become a very critical thing. And so I can, I can specify exactly what it should do, but because of temperature, it's going to cause it to go back and forth. And nobody, else actually is, uh, nobody actually is responsible for the whole aspect of sealing. And so part of this is by seeing things through the functions, right, as opposed to the objects, you see a whole different side of the world. And you can actually start to understand how to affect them and actually have an impact on them. So here's the, th here's the example. We talk about a plane, right? How does a plane fly? How does a plane fly? Magic. Magic. That's one. Lift, how do I get lift? So it's a combination of, of, in some cases, it's the wings, it's actually the, 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 the engines. What else do I need? I, I need? I need the wheels, I need the fuselage. I need, so what happens is we have these subsystems that have to be able to go into it, right? And it's how do I actually create lift to do that? But once I see the lift and what are the things, so again, those things come together to create a whole new function that none of one of the, not one of those things create not one of those things can fly, but together they can fly. But all of a sudden, it's like, all right, how do I think about the next level down? What is the subsystem? And so I start to look at it and say, let me take the engine, right? And now I'll put that as the system or a subsystem to the plane. What are the inputs for that? It's the fan blades, it's the fuel, it's all these other things. And the, the measure there is controllable thrust. How do I actually break things down from a functional perspective as opposed to an object perspective? And so Ryan and I had this whole notion of, if you look at registration, sorry, Mark, I'm going to pick on the registration form. There's a whole bunch of objects I need to actually register for this conference. But the, the reality is, is what are the functions in there, and what happens to that data, and what's the experience that the consumer has? Because half the questions you asked on the form, when as I registered for somebody else, I had no idea what the answers were. But oh, by the way, they were required. And so all of a sudden, without understanding what, what are you trying to do and what's the real function here, you end up creating things that just have objects that say, oh, this is required, that's required, without thinking through the experiences, without thinking through the functions. Right? So here's the other part. Once you have it that way, you have to also talk about the super system. Where does that plane have to fly? Different altitudes, different weather conditions, all these different things, the wear aspects to it. So part of it is I have to start to think about the super system that it lies in. And so part of this is now I can actually see how something works as a whole, right? And so for me, it, it goes back to time and space, sorry. But the reality is, is I have the system in the middle, and it's part of the super system, and that that engine is the part of the subsystem. How does it actually get assembled, and what happens to it over time? It gives me a frame to start to see how things are going to play out. I can start to see all the problems. I can start to see where I need to actually think about things differently. My thing is, is most people spend the time figuring out what's the right system I have to build without thinking through the matrix, right? And this is Gerhard Altschuler, who basically is one of the primary inventors of this fabulous man, built, built a thing called the theory of, problem, uh, theory of inventive problem solving. It's, it's phenomenal work. But this is being able to think through systems from that perspective, right? There's lots and lots of stuff on systems theory. Everything from uh, Jay Forrester, who's like, I, I consider him like the godfather of systems. He talks about, he's an economist, right? To uh, Peter Senge, to, uh, there's a whole bunch of people. But the reality is, is this notion of trying to find functionality, Taguchi is the only one I know who basically has done it. And I'm trying to get out of my head what I've been doing, because I'm a practitioner. I've just been doing it. I really don't know how I do it. And so this is my first attempt of trying to get this stuff out of my head. Number three. 
consumer progress. So this is the, the whole notion of value, what is better, and jobs to be done. And so to me, ultimately, jobs to be done was invented because of the word value, and to realize that people value things in different contexts, and that I can get a bunch of requirements, but in different contexts, you value them in different ways. And so when I was doing something called QFD, uh, quality function deployment, I realized that I was collecting all these requirements, but the weighting of what was important depended on the situation people were in. And so that's where kind of jobs was born from. And so the aspect is trying to frame the solution by saying, let me understand the problem, the context people are in, let me understand the outcomes they have, so I can actually then go design the solution. So it's framing this, what I have to go develop way better without going into the designing of the answer. So it's like, take, it's almost like hold back, don't come up with any answers yet, let's just talk about where, when, who, why, right? And this is where what I would say is context creates value. Context matters here. I always say, do you like steak or do you like pizza? People say I like both. But if I take the last time you had steak and I put pizza in it, how well does that fit? Mm, not so much. If I take pizza or steak and put it in the pizza situation, it doesn't work either. And so in some cases, your product might be undervalued because people are just using it in the wrong context. Right? And so part of this is understanding what is the context that's wrapped around how people use your product. Right? So this is another book that influenced me, which is this aspect of habits. We are creatures of habit. If it works and we can do it once, we will do it over and over and over again. We don't really want to change. But the reality when we change, it only comes from a struggling moment. My belief is demand actually is created only when people struggle. If there's no struggle, people don't change. And so everything I do is focused on where's the struggling moment, what are the people trying to do? What can't they get done? And how do I build a new solution feature to it? Right? So if I can't find struggling moments, I actually don't innovate there because I don't believe it will happen. Right? So here's the thing. The way that, that I, I view this is this, is that I have some solution A, and I, and I use it, little, what we call little hires. They, but as I'm using it, I've, my struggle builds up. And finally, I'm like, OK, enough is enough. i got to go find something else. So then how do I go find something else? How do I pick B? What is it? And what are the new struggling moments? These are actually not the same struggling moments. It's, it's all of a sudden, hey, I got a better phone, but the battery's dying. Right? All of a sudden, there's all these other new struggles. So part of it is being able to understand where's their struggles and understand the cause and effect. Cause and effect is the key. Right? So two tools. One's called the timeline. Like any good crime, there's a timeline. There's a first thought. There's passive looking. There's some event that then goes to active looking where they start to look at it. Then there's, and they can look forever, but then all of a sudden they have to decide. When they're deciding, they're making trade-offs. And so every time somebody switch, every time somebody hires your software, they go through this process. Every time they fire your software, they go through this process. It's the same thing of how people change. And so to be honest, what I want to do is I don't want to know when they're active looking what they want because they just make, can I say the S word? <laughs> Crap up. Fine, I won't. They make crap up, right? It's like, oh, I want this, oh, I want that. But the reality is, is it, it isn't until they decide to say, yeah, I'll give up this so I can get that. I'll actually, I'll, I'd rather pay a little bit more to get this. And so you start to realize that there's a whole bunch of trade-offs that people make, right? And by the way, when they buy and commit is where the, where the value code is actually locked in. They don't value things back here. They value at the moment that they decide that they're going to purchase whatever they're going to purchase, right? And so part of it is finding out those things. The other part is this, I think, um, uh, Mikey, where's, where's Mikey, where's Mikey? Mikey, there you are, I knew you were there. Mikey talked about this morning, there's push. There's things that make people make progress, but there's hindrance, and I have it broken down into two different, two different, or four different type of forces. One is there's a push at the situation that says, I need to do something new. Why in the world do I need a new software? They have no idea what they want, they just know they have to move. If there's no push, no struggling moment, they're not gonna do anything. And then at some point, unless they have an idea of what's possible, this is where they just, and I'm sorry, I have to use this one. This is where people bitch, but they don't switch. Right? I say bitching ain't switching. Right? And the moment they see the new thing, they're like, oh my god, this is great. Oh, this is awesome. This does everything I want to do. But then the reality hits in. There's two underlying things. There's an anxiety that force that comes in. There's like this water line right here, which once they see it, it's like, oh yeah, what am I going to do with all my old data? How am I going to migrate this? Do I have to train a whole bunch of new people? And by understanding kind of, this is the anxiety of the new, right? And then there's like, 
oh yeah, but I love this part. The service for this company has been great. And so there's all these habit forces that are at play. And so part of it is being able to understand how to actually help people make progress. Getting rid of the old, just so you know, when people fire you as a, as, as a software company, in their mind they're making progress. You need to know what that is. Nobody changes to go backwards. Right? The, what I would say is the irrational becomes rational with context. And if you think that they're irrational about their decision, I would say you don't know their context. Because once you understand their social and emotional context, you will actually understand what they're trying to do. Right? I think the biggest key of jobs is being able to understand the trade-offs that people really make. So a friend of mine buys a brand new car, uh, an Audi RS7. Does anybody know the car? God, gorgeous. Right? Pulls up in it, I go to get in it, he goes, yeah, God, I love the car. He goes, yeah, but it's white. It's like a $90,000 car, a $100,000 car. I'm like, what do you mean it's white? He goes, yeah, I wanted silver. What do you mean? He goes, well, I would have had to wait three weeks. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I, my lease was done, and I didn't have this, and I didn't know how I was going to coordinate it, and they weren't sure they really could get, really get a silver one, so you know, I, I just took the white one. So the notion here is that even though he wanted silver, he'd rather have it in time and have it in white that was closer to the color he wanted than, than the black one. Right? And so all of a sudden you start to realize people make trade-offs all the time. We make trade-offs on every purchase we make. And the question is, is what are those trade-offs? And so Frances Fry wrote a book called Uncommon Service. And she, she, the, the best way I like to her to say it is she goes, you need to figure out what you suck at and what you should suck at. So for example, Southwest, they suck at food. They just do. Do they care? No. Are you not going to fly them because of the food? No. They're on time. They're actually lowest price. They have all these different things going for them. So there's, the thing is you can't do everything. What are the things that you can suck at and still own the market? You can't be good at everything. This is where Jobs helps us figure that out. And to me, I always love Jason's quote. A kick-ass half is better than a half-ass whole. Again, I'm quoting. You might have to beep that, sorry. But that's Jason, right? And so the whole aspect here is how do you figure out what's, what's the awesome part of your product? And they'll look past some of the other things. So the planning is guessing is, is equally as relevant for consumers. Who knows what they're going to have for dinner next Sunday night? Nobody. So how in the world can I talk to you about the next innovation that you want for your company? Because at some point, you don't even know what's possible. You can tell me the outcome you want, but you can't tell me the underlying technology. You can't tell me anything about the solution I should be building. And so the notion is, is trying to get consumers to think about the future is, a, is futile. It's actually harmful. Because the, if you do exactly, let's be clear, I learned from hard knocks. I built exactly what they told me, and then they said no. A hundred times. A lot. Right? And you start to realize, like, what didn't I hear? How didn't I hear it? And the reality is, is that part of them is lying. Lying by omission, lying by that they don't know, lying because they don't want to admit they really have a problem. So part of it is you have to get really good at understanding consumer needs. What, they, what are they struggling with? So what did I do? I went out and learned criminal and intelligence interrogation methods. And so I talk to consumers as if I'm interrogating them. I literally use the, these techniques on the side here to say, I literally play back the story wrong to make them fix it. I literally, I, I purposefully, um, have them, I, I try to make sure that they uh, tell me their stories as clear and concise as they can. And when they don't have language, I bring prototypes to them. But I don't really care what they want. I want to know what they did and what, what, they're trying to, what they're trying to do. And so to me, this is, a, this is a very important part of jobs. Nothing, I don't think I have anything else to say on that one. We'll come back to it. Number four. This is probably one, because I have the other two, or the other three, this makes this a little bit easier for me. But the reality is, is that a lot of times we think so much about the product itself as opposed to the experience from the consumer perspective. And ultimately, trying to build, building the best product does not guarantee you have a great consumer experience. And so it's understanding what are the real experiences that people are having. And this requires people who have ability to sense. Right? A lot of the entrepreneurs that I work with they have this notion of, yeah, like Jason Fried, he has this notion of like, yeah, th this is too clunky. What does that mean? And he can actually tell you all about every aspect of it, right? So to me, this is the difference between UX and UI. 
I'm sure you guys have all seen that before. But the reality is, is like, to be honest, this isn't actually it as well, because this is better, where they're worried about what's in the, in the bottle. Here they're actually worried about how people getting it out of the bottle, right? I saw this one as well. I like this one, UI, UX, right? It's, the thing is, is I still need to build a better spoon, but I need to know how it works, and so I need to understand the consumer experiences I'm trying to create first and understand the trade-offs I'm willing to make along the way. So to me, I talked about at the beginning, who, what, and why, which is really system, or what, why, and how are really systems. What am I going to build? Why am I going to build it? How am I going to build it? That's systems. Who, when, and where is really jobs. And so the ultimate part is that experience design is really about putting those two things together and figuring out how do I actually design systems to do jobs. And there's lots and lots of tools around that. But my thing is, is you need these two things to basically get there, but you still need to execute on the experience design. Understand the experiences, both, by the way, what I would call the big hire, the sales experience of buying your product and the using of your product in terms of the struggling moments by people actually who are interacting with it on a daily basis. You, will get you might not get fired. You're more likely to get fired by not doing the little hires well, but you only get hired if you do the big hire well. And so you have to be able to understand those two things. So to me, consumer experience is the biggest of all and being able to understand how to measure. Measurement is the hardest part because we, just, we tend to be very subjective. And to be honest, we can get very concrete about the product and what it should do versus the whole experience, which includes social and emotional pieces. So being able to actually be good at understanding those experiences is critical. So to me, this is the whole notion of, hey, I got a recipe. I want to make this. What's the experience of not only basically going to the grocery store, but all the way to eating it and cleaning it up? You have to think of the entire experience and how do people feel socially, emotionally, and functionally, and where will be situations when they will actually pick this recipe and situations where they would not pick that recipe, and why? Understand the jobs of how people are using and not using your product. Right? Once you have it, then it's a question of where are the critical points? And, and is it really about minimizing the negative or is it about maximizing the positive? To be honest, again, I feel like in some cases, because it's low here, I actually get greater satisfaction because there's two low points. When it's all good, it typically starts to numb out. And so part of it is knowing some of those techniques around how to design and design better. Right? Lots and lots of resources here. Like this is, this, I, I, I would never confess to be an expert here, but I, again, I feel like because I have a better way of understanding the world, I actually can, it makes this part easier for me. But there are many people who are way better at this than I am. The last one, though, is this one. And this is really about, so I talk about context creates value. And then I talk about contrast to create meaning, right? And so to me, prototyping is about creating contrast so I can learn, so I can understand what people mean. It's not, uh, this is how I unpack things. Here's the thing. As, as a dyslexic person, I think of it as the greatest gift I ever got. Because it's literally forced me to think about things in such a different way. So the first thing is, is most people start out thinking they're going to get an A because they have a rubric. Somebody tells them how to get an A. I can't even read the rubric, right? And what I'm used to is starting with a D. But the only way I got from a D to a, to a C to a B was reps and prototyping. So instead of reading a book once, I'd have to read it five, six, seven times, only looking at the big words and guessing. right? But I got comfortable with that uncomfortableness. And so the notion is, is where everybody wants to go in and study, I want to go build. I want to go test. I want to go find things out. And so to me, the gift I have is this. It's that hard work, and again, I think it's a little bit it's a Detroit, a little bit it's my mom, a little bit it's my dad, basically saying, get harder with it. But the reality is, is it's built, it built a system for me so I could actually prototype way faster than everybody else. I think if you to have a single biggest thing of how I've been successful is I can prototype 10 times better and 10 times faster than anybody else. And I'll tell you the secrets. The first thing to me is I don't think of prototypes as physical things. I think of any decision I have to make, any place where I have to make a trade-off, any place that I don't know something, any time that I have options, I'm building, I'm building alternatives. And what I'm doing is I'm using it as a mirror. I'm not trying to say what the answers are. I'm using prototyping as a mirror to reflect the value code of what's important and why. So in terms of giving consumers things to test, 
I'm actually giving it not to find the answer, but to find out why these things either resonate or don't resonate. How would they pick them? How would they choose them? And so part of this is being able to understand what's important to them so then I can build better things. I'll give you an example in a little bit, right? Now, this really roots back to Deming. Again, I think all roads go back to Deming. Deming is the, if those who don't know, Dr. Deming's the guy who went to Japan in 1949 and helped MacArthur rebuild Japan. He's the father of the Toyota production system and basically lean, more or less. And I got to learn all this stuff from him when I was 18, right? 19 years old. The thing to me is that applying that process, plan, do, check, act, to this, divergent and convergent thinking, is all of a sudden how I prototype. What's possible? How do I actually figure out mental prototypes to say, what are the, what are the five different ways we can go? And I don't want different ones. I want really different ones. Contrast creates meaning, so if I can understand what's contrasting, and as I decide, I actually need to figure out how are people going to choose? What are the trade-offs I'm willing to make? So how do I actually use prototyping to basically answer this side of the convergent thinking? Two completely different sets of prototypes to think about for me, right? Now, 1987 is when I basically learned this, but it's what we call the, 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 the prototyping process. Plan, or, yeah, is that right? Plan, uh, plan, design, build, PD bell. Plan, design, build, evaluate, learn. And it's all about a series of those things, right? The reality in 2001, that became agile. But the reality is, is I've been, I, I was probably doing it for almost 15 years before that, and I didn't know what to call it. Again, just a practitioner, right? But the reality is, is when you start to look at it, planning is articulated. So for example, most of the way we describe prototyping is what's the question we're trying to answer? On the red line, people talk about verifying everything. On the green line, they're using prototypes to learn. Where are the limits? How can I fail? How do I actually understand where, where, where are the different limits of what I have, right? And it's understanding how to design sets of prototypes, not one, not A-B testing, to understand what is the range of things I can actually build. And I'll talk about that. But the reality is like, here's the thing. This is probably the single biggest thing that helped us at Ford was we had a waterfall process, and we used to have to design the engine and have the engine done before we could do the transmission. So our development time was 72 months. 72 months, six years. Toyota's was 36 months, right? And so what we learned was the fact is, is they used an agile type process and the idea of noise factors and control factors, and what they did is they built something called the concurrent development, where they could actually work on the engine and the transmission and do a set of prototypes about integration. But they had rules of how they actually could work. And so it allowed us to cut literally half the development time just by understanding, one, to move to, to an agile notion, but two, then how do we actually develop concurrently? And so the whole notion here is how we prototype, the way we prototype, the kinds of prototype are critical. So to me, most of the time when you're in the waterfall, it's waiting. God, I can't tell you how many times it's like you go to a team and like, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm waiting for them to finish this. What else can you be doing? Waiting is like the, the, it's the worst swear word of all to me, right? Like, you should, what else could you be doing to help you learn, right? And the notion of a small change is like, the, I think uh, Bethany said it this morning about the fact of, of, of just making a change and it takes six months. There's no small change. You change one thing, it's got to change 50 other things. How do you actually identify the interdependence? How do you understand how to make things modular? All that has to go into how you think about the prototypes you build and the system you end up creating, right? Where on the red line side, it's like simultaneous delay, pushing the limits. I can't emphasize this one enough, is too many people talk about failure, but they don't talk about why we fail. You want to fail because you're pushing the limits. You're actually making it go faster, you're making it go easier, you're making, whatever you're doing, but where does it break? So this is about pushing to break, not pushing to fail, right? They think failure is like, anybody can make something fail. It's like, I want to push the limits, right? So there are four types of prototypes. Learning prototype to answer critical development questions. So, so for me, we, we actually do sprints, and we literally frame one question or two questions at a time, and it's all about basically framing work that we can answer small questions. So if I have a big question or a big thing that I have to go do, I'm going to break it into small questions, and that becomes sets of prototypes. Communication prototypes, by the way, this is, I think, the most critical thing, especially when you have cross-functional teams, is how do you actually build communication prototypes that enable everybody on the team to have a common language? The common language thing, like, again, I think the biggest problem with, with teams is there's two things. We use the same word, 
and we have two completely different meanings, and we literally come back to it a hundred times. So if, if you literally have a meeting three times and use the same word and nobody's making progress on it, you need to stop and unpack that word because it doesn't mean the same thing on both sides. The other, the other problem you have is where people have used different words that mean the same thing, and you're arguing about the same thing, so you spend an hour arguing about the same thing. And so part of this is being able to get to that language and get to understand it, so building communication prototypes helps you there. Integration prototypes, by the way, had no notion of what an integration prototype was. We thought everything was about verification prototypes at Ford in the beginning. Just build something to verify it works. Just build stuff to verify it works. And the reality is, is they were doing 10 times as many prototypes as we were and learning so much from it. And by the time it got to being able to launch, they knew what tweaks to make, and we literally almost had to start redeveloping. It's crazy. 11 minutes. All right. Types of prototypes. Have anybody ever seen this one before? This is, this is, this is by um, uh, Ulrich, uh, uh, Ulrich and uh, what's his name? These guys are from uh, Pan, uh, University of Pennsylvania. But the notion is, is how, I always ask, how much money and how much time do I have to learn to answer the question? And this is the kind of prototype. Is it a focused prototype on a specific attribute or a specific set of attributes or functions? Or is it a comprehensive prototype where I'm looking at trying to put it all together? And is it a physical prototype or is it a conceptual prototype? And so part of this is, as I look at the questions I'm trying to answer, what's the portfolio of questions I can ask? And so we went from having to build everything physically to coming down here and being able to do focused conceptual prototypes that enables this design way faster. And as we added them up, we could actually build less physical comp comprehensive prototypes. And so being able to understand how that, that works is really, again, another, another important thing to me. This is the last of this one, but this is like, I. Uh, this is the thing that made me a superstar, I think, at the end of the day, is that Taguchi, um, who was, he was uh, at Nippon Telephone and Telegraph, he won the Deming Prize in Japan three times personally for the work he did, and this is one of them, which was for this work here. But he basically always used to say, A-B testing, what he would call one factor at a time testing, is nothing but engineering security. Because what'll happen is, is you end up saying, oh, we'll try these two things, which one works better? Oh, it'd be. And then we'll do it again, and we'll pick another one and see. But what will happen is if one thing changes, we don't know why B was better. We don't know why anything is. So when, when I have to take one thing out or one other thing changes in interdependence, I, I literally go back to zero every time. And so what he taught me was, and he always called it, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Solve one problem, create another. Because we wouldn't know how the system worked. So he basically said, no, how do I actually think about things as control factors and noise factors? and literally be able to design things so I can actually get the data out and understand how it works. So then I can optimize for speed, time, performance, et cetera. And so the reality is this. If I did a full factorial, there's 81 possible combinations, but he showed me a thing called an orthogonal array, so I could do nine of these experiments but predict 81. So I'm 90% more efficient than if I did a full factorial. The reality is, is because I'm changing everything simultaneously, I learn so it becomes more re reproducible, and I can manage the trade-offs. And so where people would be able, like what the way Ford ended up having me do this is we'd, we'd end up doing a parallel path. I'd go solve it and somebody else would go solve it. And, and what would always happen is I would come back faster because they would do one factor at a time and then they go to verify it and wouldn't verify because they couldn't tell why. And so as a very young kid, this is one of the things that kind of made me a very early hero is being able to just do this. And I knew nothing about half the systems I was working in. Right? So here are the five skills. How to see the world. How, to, how things work, how people work, how it comes together, and how to learn. And so to me, that's what's made me a very successful innovator. And my belief is that everybody has their own set, and ha everybody has their own way of doing this. But to me, I've been very successful by, by, it's not just any one of these. It's the set together, right? Eight minutes, here we go. So some common elements, which you realize is asking a lot of questions, again, the gift of dyslexia. Does anybody have one of those kids where they ask a thousand questions and you're like, oh my God, please go away? So, so I was one of those kids. My mom actually gave me a rule that if she let anybody come within three feet of me, please go talk to them. I don't want to hear anything anymore. But to be honest, I'm always asking questions. The way Clay states it is, questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. And so asking and getting better at asking questions is what I think is innovation is all about. Right? Being humble and saying I don't do any, know anything. I, I, to be honest, um, at 35, I basically, uh, my mom had told me never to tell anybody I was dyslexic because she, she, she thought I'd be labeled. 
But at 35, I finally, I had too much going on, and I had a couple of health issues based, uh, and I basically uh, told, started to tell people I was dyslexic. And the reality is, is, is being very stupid about things allowed me to ask all the stupid questions, which were all the assumptions they had in place. And so my thing is, is just be humble to say you don't know. So many people will fake that they know something when they don't. Right? And to be honest, I'd much rather go into something and, 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 and start from the fresh eye of nothing than start with something. How to maximize. This is another thing that comes back is like whether it's how do I do as little you know, of research as possible? How do I do as few prototypes as possible? How do I actually figure out how to do this? And so to me, it's a combination of doing as much as possible with as little as possible as fast as possible. That's where all this, these techniques and tools for me have come from. Is like, I never had a lot of money. I never had a big way of doing things. It's like, I just got to figure it out. And how do I figure out better ways and get smarter and do it smarter, not harder? Right? This one I can't emphasize enough. I feel like this is the thing that's missing in a lot of innovation is really spending time to think through time and space. Where, where and when are people doing things? Who is doing what? And spending this time to actually get the right data sets to understand behavior and the experience, right? And to be honest, I think if I look at my current work that I do, 30% of my time is unpacking. People use the word fun, easy, fast. What do you mean? Where? How? Who? It's all that kind of work. So five minutes. Here we go. So I'm going to tell you a story from way long ago. One of my first projects, I'm, I'm 20 years old, 21 years old at this point, and um, there's a paint line at Wixom plant in Detroit. The, the plant's shut down now. But the fact is we'd paint these cars. You'd e-code them, and then you basically go through the robots, and they get painted. And as they'd come off the line, there'd be paint problems, something called orange peel and runs and drips. And at some point, they had about $150 million of rework going on it, and they had a, they had a very big team working on it. Of all the chemists and, and you know, the, the, the robot people and the chemists on the paint and the operators and they'd sit around. And I sat in the back and I just listened. And all I was listening for were control factors and noise factors. I was listening for what are the things that you can change that actually will affect this and how does it work. I knew nothing about painting systems. I was an electrical engineer. The closest it came is that they would charge the car with voltage and they'd charge the paint so the paint and the, and the car would actually come together, right? And so part of this was, as me sitting in the back, I'm like, okay. And Taguchi, Taguchi was coaching me at this point and saying, you know what, just listen for those factors of what they control. Well, I can control the viscosity of the paint. We can control the pressure of that paint. We can control the speed of the, the robot bell. We can actually control the speed at which it goes back and forth in the number of times. We can change the voltage. We can change the polarity of the voltage. So I'm just writing all these things down. and like, okay, uh, so we're going to go off and we're going to measure the number of cars that come out with orange peel and paint runs. He goes, no, no, no. It's not right. Don't measure the problem, measure the function. What do you mean? He goes, don't measure the problem, measure the problem. All problems are problems of variation. Figure out the function, functional measure that describes this. So we went off and we started to talk about this. Sorry, I got all that done, so we figured out those factors. But I went off and basically found out that the real problem was the thickness of the paint was varying over where it was. Right? And so part of it was, is how do we actually paint complex process, complex parts that literally, whether it's a vertical or horizontal surface, and that it, in some cases it gets sags, right? It's like if, it, if you put too much paint on it, it'll, it'll, it'll stick, but it'll start to sag down. And so he said, how do we actually figure out how to actually reduce the variation? Because if it's too thin, I get orange peel, and if it's too thick, I get runs and drips and sagging. And what was happening is they'd fix one problem, and they cause another one. And then they'd fix that one, and they cause another. So they were just kept going back and forth. And so part of it was, okay, so we, we got it. So we went off and we took this, this, this orthogonal array. We did 18 experiments, but we did it on very complicated parts so we could understand basically how to do this very quickly. So in, in a matter of four days, we were able to run the process 18 different ways. The crazy part is I just put in what, what a, for example, A1 is like the voltage drop. So is it 250 volts, 180 volts, 120 volts, right? The, 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 the crazy part is I didn't know what was going to happen. Most people try to test because they know what's going to happen. I was testing because I didn't know. And so what we were able to do was come back and say, all right, we're going to collect the data. We're going to put it back there. And in a week, I came back to the team. PhDs in chemistry, all this thing. I'm like, I think you need to change this, this, and that. I'm like, kid, who are you? You don't know nothing. I'm like, look, I, 
here's what I did. I showed them the data, and they're like, yeah, no, no. And they're like, the theory tells us that the voltage should be this way, and it should be this polarity, and you're telling us to reverse the polarity. I'm like, I don't know why. I'm just telling you what the data has basically doing it. So it's the notion of tech, tech, doing the technical data. And so they, at some point, that they said, all right, we'll try it. And the plant manager was there, and he actually, and the results was this. We reduced variation by, by almost 40%. We reduced re rework by 83%. So from 150 million to about 25 million, sped up the line by 14%. 20-year-old kid who knew nothing about anything. And so my point is, is by learning these tools and these methods and being able to dive into the depth of them and see the system and see what's there, and to be honest, we're prepared to fail, prepared to learn, prepared to build contrast, prepared to push. This is how, that was one of my first successes, and to be honest, all, all that happened was, all right, you need to go work on this project. You're going to need to work on it. And they moved me around. And all I did week after week after week was basically do these kinds of things. And I worked in everything from uh, material, uh, metals and uh, injection molding and glass. And like, I did hundreds and several hundreds of products and learned knowing nothing about them, but learning how they worked. So to me, that's the power of these tools. So this is the other part. I don't keep it at work. I feel sorry for my children. Can you imagine my children? Oh, these are my four kids. And the reality is, is uh, all, uh, to be honest, Feldy, empty nester this year. I made it. And, the, and by the way, this weekend, the youngest has said she's going to stay. So I'm like, because you never know. They can go, but sometimes they don't stay. But for me, it's literally using the same thing, thinking about college as a system. What are the different things that cause them to pick the school? What are the different things we can actually think about where they want out of school? Forcing a conversation to think about it. It's not just about getting to school, it's getting out of school. What do you love to do? What are you good at? And so by forcing to think about that, we then basically, yes, I did it. I built a little array. <laughs> and the array was things like, hey, you know, uh, do you want to go to a close school within 50 miles? Do you want to go to a, far, a school farther away? Do you want to go to a public university or do you want to go to a private university? Do you want to go to a big school? Do you want to go to a small school? Do you want to be a liberal arts? Do you want to be science? And so as we went to these different schools, I knew they weren't going to want any one of the schools we went to. But as we went to them, what do you like about this one? How do you see yourself looking at these ones? Literally building the experience behind it. So all of them basically did, to the, basically did that. So I took them to Wayne State, which is literally in Detroit's backyard, Hillsdale, which is close, Miami of Ohio, Harvard, Trinity. You know, we went to West Coast as well. But the notion is just by saying contrast. The notion of as they got on the plane and so they said they wanted to go far away, the moment that they landed, they say, God, this is too far. Right? They don't know what they want. They have no idea. But by then having them score the schools on what was important to them and what was good, I was able to get them to those three schools. Right? Here's the stupid part. They're all applied math majors. <laughs> so let's be clear. They are all geeks. Right? But... Here's the thing is, as I started to do this, I started to realize, how many other parents have this problem? A lot. So I actually turned it into a book. It's coming out in August with Michael Horn. What's next? Choosing college. And there are five jobs why kids choose college. And what you can do is, if you know the jobs that they're in, here's how you can pick. Here's how you can build a plan and how you can do it. And it's written for the kid, for the student, it's written for the parents, and it's written for the universities. So, this, this is one of those things people say, like, when do you not think about systems? Everything's a system to me. Writing this presentation was a system, right? So where am I? Oh, am I over? I'm out. All right, hold on. Can I do one more slide? One more. Or, no, two. I got two, and then I'm going to. So this one, this one is, this is and a, two maximum. That's it. I'll, I'll, I'll skip through this. This is a bonus slide, but this is about supply side. So really what this is is bringing everything together. And that what happened is, is, is for me, the, 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 the supply side is where I have a business and I want to go create something, but I actually don't have any demand for it. And so my best example of this is where the hospitals say, I can prevent a heart attack. So we're going to build a system to prevent heart attack. It has education. It has all these different things to it. And guess what? There's no demand for it until you have the heart attack. So as much as they can prevent it, the fact is there's no demand. So part of it is, how do I actually understand the progress people want to make and then feed this back here and design experience? So, Ryan and I were, are talking a lot about this whole notion of supply-side thinking and demand-side thinking. 
And you need to actually have both. But the reality is demand side, which is the jobs part, is basically where basically you have to design two. And sometimes you want to design the best product, and the best product for them is halfway. It's just this good. It's just a little better than nothing. And you're trying to say, no, I'll sell this. They can't value the whole thing yet. All right, last slide. I'm going to skip a couple things. I really went over. So greatest innovation comes from Deming. I was sitting with Clay. Clay's going, what's your greatest innovation ever? Some people have seen this. Some people haven't. But the reality is, is it comes back to when I was renting cars with Deming. And Deming would be like, you know, come on, we got to get to the airport. Don't want to be late. I have to return the car, right? And so it turns out that this is me pulling into the, 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 uh, the gas station with a rental car. First thing on my mind, holy crap, which side is the gas tank on? And you look in the mirrors trying to find the thing. It's not there. And then you basically pull up and you'd be on the wrong side. And you'd be like, oh. And so what happened then is basically pull around and do, shit, I did it, sorry, the wrong side. And then what would happen is like I pull it over there and there's Deming in the front seat yelling at me like, why are you doing this? So at one meeting, he basically looked at my boss and said, you know what, you need to fix this problem. This kid needs to fix this problem. So he made me go out and take pictures and do all these different things. And so in 1987, that's what the gas tank looked like. Here's the crazy part. Five years it took me to come up with that little arrow. And so I make, I make no money on it. I, it literally has really no impact uh, monetarily, but it's one of those things where just a little more comfort for a few people in the world. So when they drive somebody else's car, they don't have to worry about which side the gas tank is on. Business of Software is not just about great podcasts and conferences. We also have a host of great online masterclasses with a wealth of world-leading experts all aimed at helping you do what you want to do better, better. For more information, visit businessofsoftware.org slash online dash masterclasses. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.